The Way Out Podcast, episode 377. What is your name? This is Jamie Andrews. How you doing? (laughs) Jamie, I'm tremendous. And I am pleased as punch to have you on The Way Out Podcast. Jamie, do you identify as a person in recovery? Not in the traditional sense, no. Um, I, I don't go to meetings. I still had a beer with my friends the other night and I don't want to alarm your listeners because I know that's not the choice for everybody. Um, but it's it's kind of a miracle, uh, the phases of recovery I've been through to that now I'm in a place where I can be judicious with my intake and at least because I've been through programs, I know what to look for if something's getting out of hand. You know, I can leave a half bottle of wine in the kitchen for a week and I'm not hitting that, you know? There's so many of us listening right now, Jamie, that just don't understand that, that that leaving it half drank and not wanting to drink the whole thing. But I think it's an instructive story because not everybody who has problematic substance or alcohol use is an alcoholic or an addict. And so in terms of being able to live through and experience excessive or problematic use and and ultimately coming out of that and not identifying as somebody that has an addiction or a substance use disorder, that's real, that happens all the time, right? I think my abuse was certainly a reaction to my emotional issues I was having and over the many years it's taken to repair those, the need to deaden those parts of me have kind of fallen away. Yeah, a lot of people can relate with using substances to self-medicate. Yes, yes. And it can be a difficult line to determine chicken or the egg. Mm-hmm. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's different for everybody. And somebody that might start using it to medicate some sort of emotional pain, trauma, or mental illness, it may indeed progress to the point of addiction and alcoholism. And some people that use it to medicate those things, it indeed may not. Yeah, I think I saw maybe on one of your earlier episodes, someone saying, I think it was you said, uh, at first it may even seem like the self-medication is working. Yeah. Like I had a lot of anger and smoking pot all the time made me more chill, but eventually I wasn't leaving my house and I was (laughs) smoking pot all the time, like every hour. And uh, (laughs) I can so relate to that, Jamie, the unbridled anger and angst mm-hmm. and using marijuana to be able to deaden that, calm that down and escape it to some extent. And so, you know, you're, and it is folks who pick up your book will soon identify there's plenty of angst and anger in young Jamie as she was navigating the trials and tribulations of young adulthood. 
Yeah, um, my book is The Brink, and it's the story of my life up until the age of 17. I thought I was going to write my life story because it's been a kind of crazy life. Uh, and then I, I got to where I was about to go to college and I had a full book and I'm like, well, I guess there's going to be more than one of these. <laughs> <laughs> but the I love the way you wrote the book. It's so immersive. So that's why I feel like I love that. Yeah, I, I it's no surprise that you can only get to age 17 because it's extremely immersive. And again, as we talked about before hit and record, you and I are about the same age and I can relate to so many of the experiences that you had growing up and the raves and the house parties and the music. Yes. Yes. And the dysfunction that was in so many of the families, at least in my circle, that was so pervasive, but so rarely talked about and so rarely dealt with in any meaningful way. And us Gen Xers are the products of a lot of dysfunction at times in families, right? Well, our parents were you know, raised by what, the greatest generation? And their whole thing was, you sweep everything under the rug. You don't yeah. talk about You got issues. it. So my mom is horrified by my book. She's not going to read it. <laughs> like, I already lived through it. I don't need to know what's in there. My aunt eventually wanted to buy it. My mom is like, you can buy it, but you're forbidden to read it. Because... Because I am extremely honest there, and I wouldn't want my mom to know all the details. Because she, she's 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 very boomer. I love <laughs> her dearly, and she's wonderful. But she would be, you know, oh Jamie, how could you? How could you tell people this? It's the book. It's graphic at times, and yeah. uh, boomers have a hard time with that. Yeah, yeah, they do indeed. Jamie, last intro question for you. What does recovery mean to you? Recovery to me means living the life that you deserve to live. I love that. No, I love that. That's great. I love that. I absolutely love that. Uh, Because a lot of us have felt a nagging sense that our lives are lacking in some fundamental way and maybe that's what we deserve and maybe that's just the penance that we're set to live is to endure and suffer a life that's somehow short of what we thought we might want right right we i think we all have an idealized version of ourselves we know what we could be and it took me uh, 40 something years to really come into my own maybe because I'd gone through so much when I was young it took longer you know they always ask if you could tell your younger self something what would it be and it's like I think I'd just hit her (laughs) (laughs) snap out of it you know because it really is a wonderful world at our disposal if we choose to be a part of it and embrace it Mm -hmm. 
Welcome Way Out faithful and first-timers to this week's installment of the Way Out podcast. We appreciate your ears. Our mission is simple, to bring you powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics so you can jumpstart or re-energize your recovery from alcoholism and addiction. The Way Out podcast does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. The Way Out podcast is a proud supporter of Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check us out on the web at www.wayoutcast.com. There you can subscribe to ensure you get the latest episodes first on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Help us recover out loud by giving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Your voice matters, so share your thoughts on recovery with us by calling us at 218-382-1960 or leaving a message with us on the Anchor app, available for Android and Apple. Someone, somewhere, needs to hear your share. Listen up, everyone. Certified and professional recovery coaching is now available by going to wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. We want to help you and those you know who want help in building a strong, rewarding, and enduring recovery. Let our recovery experience and training enhance and strengthen your recovery by visiting wayoutcast.com and then clicking on Recovery Coaching. Finally, a word of caution, this podcast may contain strong language and mature content. Listener discretion is advised. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and in this edition of The Way Out, I'm pleased to bring you my interview with actor, producer, and author of the new memoir, The Brink, Jamie Andrews. The Brink is a tale so compelling immersive, and captivating that it couldn't be anything other than 100% true. This extraordinary coming-of-age story of one Jamie Andrews is at once hilarious and harrowing, and it will have you racing to reach the stunning climax and finale. I couldn't help feeling like it was as if I was experiencing every moment right along with her. As absorbing as this book is, what's even more impressive is her story's power to connect with readers who may be having or had similar experience and feel like they're not alone in their experience. And recovery is not only possible, but absolutely worth it. The Brink is a worthwhile read in every sense of the word, and this here episode is worth every bit of your time and attention, so do be sure you listen up. Jamie Andrews, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here on the Way Out podcast. You are a newly minted author. You're an actress and a producer, and you're here with us to share your journey to and through recovery as you define it, as well 
is about your new memoir, The Brink, and I couldn't be happier about it. Before we jump into all of that magic, why don't you take a moment to reintroduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience. Tell us a little bit about yourself and we'll get started. You got it. Hey, everybody. I'm so happy to be here. My name is Jamie Andrews. Uh, I've been on the outskirts of popular culture for a long time. I was on the show World's Dumbest for five years, making jokes about internet videos. Uh, I was on the cover of a My Chemical Romance album. I did like three dozen commercials, you know, Geico Gecko and Chester Cheetah and all that. Um but it has been a really long road, which I start talking about uh, in The Brink, which is my book that came out last Wednesday. It's the story of my life up until age 17. Uh, and it's pretty shocking. I'm very honest. I'm very vulnerable. I didn't pull any punches. There's going to be some people mad at me, and I'm I'm ready for it. I haven't heard from them yet. <laughs> When I owe them dinner or something, if they don't throw it in my face. Um, but I'm really, really proud of it. I've been hearing great things so far, all five-star reviews. And uh, I'm really honored to share it with everyone. You know, it it came out of me. And so I feel like I wrote it. Why keep it to myself? Because I actually wrote it 20 years ago. Really? Uh, and yes, and I had interest from a fancy agent. And I said I wanted to publish anonymously because I didn't want it to get in the way of my acting career. Sure. Because it's so scandalous that yes. I, th <laughs> I thought it could be a problem. It was a so, different time then, though, 20 years ago, too, Jamie, right? In terms of mental health awareness. Yeah. And I, it makes sense to some extent. Yeah, people are becoming more and more aware, I think. Um, so maybe maybe it would have been groundbreaking, but I probably also wouldn't have uh, sold you dish soap if <laughs> <laughs> they're like, we don't want the. the <laughs> you got it. Might have been before it's time in that regard. Well, I uh, just I think it was shooting myself in the foot. I I then had to wait 20 years before I felt like, you know, this could mean something to people. This could make a difference in people's lives. This is that is why you wrote it or actually ended up releasing it? Um, I wrote and released it because I think it's a crazy story. I, I think it's unusual. I wrote it actually after, do you remember Million Little Pieces by James Frey? Yes. That came out and there was this whole furor because it turned out not to be true. And I was so angry about that. I'm like, I have a story. Mine's yeah. true. I'll give you a true story. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I did hope it would serve at least, you know, for young adolescents, particularly young adolescent women who find themselves in my position. I I don't think it gives steps how to change, but it brings to light the horror of what it feels to go through what I did and that maybe someone could look at it and say, well, I don't want to do that. I want more for myself. This is not the life I want. And also very much in my own history and experience now in recovery, being able to relate 
with somebody that's had a similar experience to you when you've perhaps felt for what probably feels like forever that nobody feels like you do. Nobody's experienced what you have. Nobody's thought what you thought. And to discover that somebody else indeed too has had similar experience and come through on the other side. Yes. That's extremely powerful. Yes, I hope so. Thank you. Um, You know, for anyone that's gone through any portion of my story, the, you know, kid going through divorce, a kid being bullied, you know, a, a kid having mental health issues. That is so scary for a young person when you don't have a supportive family unit or you don't have the resources at your disposal to get that taken care of, you feel so alone. So I hoped my book would make people feel not as alone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it will. No question. It certainly made me feel very connected to you in that time. My mom died when I was 11 years old and I got bullied right after that happened in middle school. So I deeply related to your experiences, Jamie. That is just horrible, Charles. That's such a hard age to lose someone so close to you. That's devastating. Absolutely. And look, I always believed I had big addicts and alcoholic switches and those were going to get tripped somehow. But my mom dying when I was 11 threw gasoline on that already smoldering fire for sure yes so you were always aware that was a possibility no that was retrospect okay (laughs) oh yeah that was that was the 2020 vision of hindsight okay i see (laughs) no question at the time it just felt like the answer at the time it just felt like this is the solution and i bet it was the same for you like i don't ever remember feeling peer pressure it was like, there's this? Sure, I'll do that. A hundred percent. No, I was the one doing the peer pressuring. Yeah, I've heard I was a bad <laughs> We're the bad yeah. influences, Charles. Yeah. Look at yes. us now. Yes, yes, yes. So who wants to do it alone? Come on. Right. Let's do this together. Misery loves company. There's no doubt about it. Well, yeah, there's there's that. Seeing yourself reflected in, in someone else. It's validating. Absolutely. Okay, so Jamie, tell me about your family of origin, your foo a little bit, and then let's launch into a little bit about the book of the story. Again, you get to tell the audience as much as you want about The Brink. Okay, well, it starts out, um, and this is in the sample, so I'm not giving too much away, that I'm sitting at a desk in high school that says Jamie Andrews is a slut on it. (laughs) And this really happened. Everything in the book really happened, um, especially the things that made me a slut. So I am in this horrible depression. You're seeing this about yourself. You're doing whatever you can to get outside yourself, whether that's fooling around with guys, whether that's drinking, whether that's drugs. Um, you know, it's kind of a whole package thing for a young lost teen. Yeah. And so I, from that point, I say, okay, this is where it started. You know, my, I lived with my mom and dad. Um, it was her second, my mom's second marriage. 
I had, she had a daughter from her first marriage. And so Jennifer, who is carrying the book, uh, was six and a half years older than me. Uh, we often got along and there are some instances in the book when we did not. <laughs> um, <laughs> and she hated my dad. My dad has what could only, he wasn't physically violent except the, the spank, the occasional spankings. I remember having a violence to them, but it, he is more of a violent personality. Yeah. Like if you spilled your water, what is that? You know, like, ah, ah. <laughs> like disproportionate responses. Yes. To small things. Yes, absolutely. And, and he just, he lies all the time over nothing. So there became a front in the house where it was like everyone against him. And so he would like, just stay in the basement all the time. Like it was just, I always thought looking back that I had a happy childhood. And my mom even said, you know, I could tell your sister was upset by your dad. It didn't seem to bother you. Mm. And why would it? It was the only thing I'd ever known. Yeah, right. And what's funny is uh, I heard from my cousin finish the book. and He wrote to me laughing because it's very interesting. My mom and aunt both married similar guys, probably uh -huh. because their dad was that way, too. You got it. Yeah, the gen love that generational trauma. Oh, yeah. You got <laughs> it. Self-perpetuates unless we do something about it. Yes, exactly. So good for us for breaking cycles. But uh, <laughs> did you just give me five? I missed the five. <laughs> I sure did. I sure did. Uh, so for the listeners, mm -hmm. Jamie and I just gave each other high fives virtually. <laughs> Everybody at home, feel free to join in. Give Indeed. It's high yeah, five city. Virtual high fives all high around. Five city, high five city. That was great. That was great. <laughs> so yeah, so that is, unless we interrupt that generational trauma, which takes a lot of work and a lot of leaning into some uncomfortable things. Right. And it's just very difficult when you're in a household that's just kind of seized with hate and anger to come but sort of under the surface, right? Like as I'm reading this and I'm not all the way through, but I'm most of the way through, it's like very much under the surface, right? And then it, like it, you said, it, it exposes itself over seemingly trivial things. Yes, absolutely. And, um, beyond that, uh, it's not dealt with in any way. Like my mom doesn't understand and yet I think I'm absolutely a reaction to my previous generation that I want to talk everything out. I want to confront all the issues. <laughs> um, and it's funny because my husband has a little of that, but we're not breeding. So we're not passing it on. <laughs> but it's very funny. You are drawn to people that activate those childhood schemas for you i learned that phrase schemas and i loved it i think it was the one time i read oprah magazine just that you're hardwired to respond to certain situations so luckily you know my husband did have some flash anger stuff and he's really worked on it because i was like i'm not going to put up with this i'm not going to be 
yelled at and he realized he would lose me. And that's because they didn't, you know, when dad yelled, oh, dad's yelling. Oh, great. Oh, great. Um, There he goes again. But if you don't deal with it, like, I feel like I've gotten the chance to break that generational curse because my husband and I worked on it. And now he doesn't do that. Yeah. That has to be very intentional. I think, too, Jamie, it's common in men to have a proclivity for that. I certainly did in my past and would find myself getting very angry over small things. Mm -hmm. I was angry pretty much all the time and didn't really know how to deal with it and suppressed it most of the time. And then, you know, something would set it off, right? It comes out sideways, I think. Well, don't you think that's because men are told to bottle up their emotions and not to cry? and? So it just comes out as anger. And and anger seems to be the only one that's somewhat, even though it's not, it is, right? Does that make sense that it's not acceptable for men to be angry, but it is seemingly the only acceptable emotion? Yes. (laughs) You know? I absolutely agree with you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And anger is easy from an emotional perspective. It's easily accessible. Right. And it's they say it's not the first emotion, right? Yeah, it's definitely a secondary emotion, no question. Yeah, and my work in recovery has allowed me to be able to name emotions and process emotions and give myself the time, the space, and the grace to be able to sit with an emotion, identify it, and then choose an appropriate response. Mm-hmm. to that emotion and yes that's a practice and that is something that i had to very and still do intentionally do as a process and the more i do it now almost nine years in recovery i'm better at it mm-hmm. not perfect but a lot better at it good for you man yeah and that's the work right so Okay, so um, growing up in a home that has this front between dad, who is increasingly isolating himself. Yes. From the women of the house. Mm -hmm. How does that manifest and how does your experience at home, at school and that progress? Well, I mean, I think me acting out promiscuously was an attempt to get male approval because, you know, you couldn't get that from my actual dad. Um, you know, sad and cliche as it is, it's <laughs> it's the road I went down. Um, and, and that started really early for you, right? Uh, pretty, pretty early. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my first kiss was sixth grade and or summer after sixth grade and uh, things progressed pretty quickly from there. Um, but I also had these uh, terrible headaches around that time, which um, we thought was like clogged sinuses, but I think was actually my sinuses were clogged because I was crying all the time because sure. <laughs> I was so miserable. Yeah, And so, and I would just scream crying. I was so 
miserable at school and I had been this just great student and I'd always been at the top of the class and you know it, it just like so many of us it all falls apart um when you're not and I think in schools nowadays they are teaching more mindfulness mm-hmm. um because what do they say um schools today or schools generally don't make thinkers they make workers you got it <laughs> you got it they make and doers I, yeah yeah and i think i was a thinker that was so stultified by this environment i hated i hated being in school and it was also i was you know being mocked mercilessly so just being in school became just this torture chamber think about that for a second just in terms of how increasingly untenable home life was for you. And then school, often, if you're fortunate, becomes a respite. And mm-hmm. sounded like was to some extent for a little bit because you achieved well and you excelled and achievement was something that seemed to sort of come naturally to you. It, be- did. it did, but once it came to trying, I couldn't try. I wouldn't do homework. I wouldn't study. Oh, same thing. Oh, you have a sister. That's it. it. Like it, it was, me. That's so funny. It's so funny. Well, it's that gifted kid syndrome. I know. Right? Yes, yeah, so I passed it down to my eldest and I see it so clearly and they can't see it in themselves. They will at one point, but I suffered from exactly the same thing. Everything came so easily, right? You could just sleepwalk through it. So if it comes, if it's more difficult, then it's not worth doing. Oh, I'm not naturally good at this. Forget it. What's the point? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. But school becomes increasingly untenable because you are experiencing bullying and ostracization and you're not in the in group anymore at some point. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds, uh, so superficial, but it was devastating at the time. <laughs> you know what, though? Let's be real, real clear. It may sound trivial. It's absolutely not. First of all, we're meant to be in a group. We evolved to need to be in a group. Mm-hmm. If you weren't in a group back in our evolutionary beginnings, you died. Wolves killed you, Jamie, if you weren't in the group. Like, it's a biological need for survival to be in a group. And when you're ostracized from that, it's a trauma. It just is. That's a fact. Yeah, it was. It was was difficult. You hear about those kids eating... uh eating lunch in the bathroom stalls just to avoid the lunchroom, you know? Yes. Yes. No question. All right. So what happens next? Uh, well, then I go on to high school and I, I do find a peer group and it's all the outcast kids. Yay. Outcast kids. <laughs> <laughs> and um, they don't, Foist upon me, but I foist upon my, you know, what the circles I'm running in there, you know, it starts with drinking and then it's drugs yeah. and then it's, you know, the over sexualized behavior. Yeah. And um, 
things got really bad for me. My mental health was in the shitter. Can I say that? You absolutely can. We're post disclaimer, JB. You can cuss all you want. Okay. Um, Yeah. So it gets to, without giving anything away, I just kind of circle the drain to a point where it's amazing I didn't fall down. So that's why it's called the brink because I was really on that edge. Um, and it was pretty miraculous. I came back from that. You, you, I don't think you're to that part of the book yet. No, no, no you got like 20 chapters. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Yeah, you're you're gonna have to call me back and, and tell me what you think of uh, what goes down. Um, but I think it's it's an unusual story. It's an impactful story. I thought it would be, you know, good to get out in the world and and see show people that no matter how bad things get, you can turn things around. And there's power in recovery and recovering yourself and i'm i'm really proud to have come through what i have when we tell our stories out loud we like to call it recovering out loud when we recover out loud jv we afford others the opportunity to connect to our stories and maybe for the first time ever, not feel alone, not feel like they're the only person that are experiencing what they are or have experienced. And as important, maybe, just maybe for the first time in their lives, believe that they can get better too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what my hopes are for the book. And it's funny. I mean, I it's did do write jokes for a living. <laughs> it's tremendous. Awesome. I am so absorbed into this book. It's funny. It's compelling. It's relatable. It's honest. It's raw. It's at times shocking. I mean, literally, JB, I was on the treadmill and I was listening to it. My reader read it out loud and I didn't want to stop for this interview. Okay. Oh, I would have sent you an nope. audio copy. My nope. audio copy. No, you like your reader? Oh, yeah. You can send me an audio copy. 100% you can. No okay. question. I, I read Although it. It's kind of funny to hear the reader read it too. I mean, it's a little, fu- it's it's pretty funny. You know, oh, to, yeah. No, but please send me the audio copy. I would love I that. Be good. No, did you do the voiceover? I did. That's I did. Great. My, my husband does audiobooks, so he produced it for me. He has a little studio right over there. That's um, tremendous. Your listeners couldn't see me blushing. That was thrilling. Your kind words. I, I really, <laughs> really appreciate. Absolutely. You know, and to put yourself out there like this. You don't know if someone's going to be like, what a desperate, pathetic person. <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, you know, a lot of the experiences are so relatable. And you know, especially the music that you were listening to. Now, you're two years my senior, so you were coming up with just two years before me. But you're talking about your love of Depeche Mode and then your 
you know, love of, you know, when grunge hit, you were grunge before grunge was grunge, right? Like, uh, uh which oh, is, I never claimed that. I never, no, I know, that but a hundred percent. And the angst that came along with that music, it was the music our generation really needed to be able to vocalize the amount of angst that was coming from our collective experience. And so such a good way to put it. I had never thought of it that way before. Yeah, it gave expression to it did. It gave voice angst, yeah. to our angst. And uh, it reminds me, I remember prior to this, by the way, I'd been listening to like I was in middle school and I'd been listening to like MC Hammer, you know. Right. right. Okay. And my best friend, Josh, uh, buddy owed him five bucks. Okay. And Josh was like, dude, you have to pay me. Give me my five dollars. He's like, I don't have that, but I can give you a, a tape. It's just tapes. Instead, so you have a choice between Megadeth and this band called Nirvana. Nobody had heard of Nirvana at the time. And they were completely unknown to anybody, probably but Seattle, right, at the time. And he chose Nirvana. And we're walking home, and I'm like, you idiot. You're a moron who is Nirvana and you just wasted $5. You could have taken Megadeth oh, and everybody knew Megadeth. It was a known quantity. Like, and I'm just berating him all the way to his house. He's like, what? I wanted to see what it was like, you know? And I was like, that's just <laughs> good. Josh impression. hundred percent. Exactly <laughs> how he talks. Like you're, you're a fucking idiot. And he puts it in his boom box and we're sitting in his bedroom and smells like teen spirit comes on and it changed our lives literally yeah. it's not a understatement in terms of the experience we just listened to that album all the way through without saying a word and our jaws were just agape at what was coming out of that boom box and it for the first time, it lended voice to all the crazy feelings that we were all feeling at the time, mm -hmm. you know, and like you, I was with the misfits and the kids from divorced families. So they called them broken homes then. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it really felt like we had music that finally understood how we felt. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And then for Kurt Cobain to oh die, God. it was devastating to all of us. Like it was. We our voice we did we we absolutely did it was completely and, and i still f have mixed feelings around his death just because he was so talented and he was so different than anything that even in that genre he was I think apart from the rest, just in terms of his innate ability to be able to write songs that so deeply connected with people on a very visceral level. But yet, as somebody in recovery, to know that ultimately his addiction and likely some undiagnosed mental illness was certainly a part of why he um, ended his life. And I believe physical ailments like he yes, was, he was undiagnosed. Yes, yes. 
taking drugs to deal with, I think, ulcer. Like, yeah, uh, some sort of stomach ulcers or some yeah. sort of undiagnosed stomach problem for sure. Yeah, he was medicating physical pain, certainly emotional pain, maybe undiagnosed mental illness, certainly a wicked heroin addiction. Well, imagine also being, I mean, he was pretty young and 27 at the top of the world in terms of what you've accomplished, how terrifying that must be. I actually, um, you know, this isn't in the book, but um, uh, after recovering from the second round of my uh, self-abuse, I was pretty sober, just dabbling for a long time, you know, just very casual. And then I started doing well in Los Angeles, um, really getting everything I'd ever dreamed of. I just wanted to make a living as an actor. And there I was making a living as an actor. And for some reason, I, well, I was in a community that was smoking a lot of pot and I'm like, I could, do, I could do this again. And, you know, it started just every weekend. And then suddenly I'm doing it all the time because I, I can't handle the pressure of even the small amount of success I had. Yeah. It changed everything. Like, oh, all I wanted was to make a living as an actor. Now I'm making a great living and I'm still not happy because that was the thing with getting sober or sober-ish as I was. Um, I didn't deal with the problems that made me have trouble in the first place. So that had never gone away. I just stopped using frequently and then stopped using bad, really bad things. So I had to go through years and years. Actually, I didn't even stop smoking pot until two and a half years ago i was making i made a movie called division it's on tubi it's very good <laughs> division i like it and what is division about real quick as an aside it's um uh it's very autobiographical it's a z-list actress connects with a fan online and they seem to have a connection but it turns out they have opposing political views so can they come together or does is it proven that we're all too far apart from each other in this sure. divide? So Film Threat called it a masterpiece. And I other like than that. that, no one's watched it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, obviously my friends, some of my friends have, but uh, it's hard to get stuff out there. So I really appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk about my, my book. But I stopped smoking pot during production of that movie. I had smoked pot every day for over a decade and for some reason during the movie I was just like I don't want that anymore I don't and I wasn't using it as heavily as I had been smoking it every hour I was just having a little before bed but I suddenly did not care about it anymore that was its own miracle and I think it was because I was satisfied with what I was doing I was mm -hmm. I wrote and produced and starred in the movie it was very satisfying and I needed my head to be clear. And so I was able to really let it go. And to the point that I, I still just, you know, if I see it, if a friend has it, no, don't want it. Yeah. So strange. Yeah. And a lot of 
recovery media don't like to highlight this or focus on this, but natural recovery is very real and I think extremely common, meaning that over a period of time, if one is able to address some of the other contributing factors to the substance abuse, the substance abuse becomes a non-issue by default. Right. I mean, if, if you ask my vape, my vape will tell you I'm an addict. <laughs> I cannot get rid of the nicotine. At least it's, I think it's better for you than cigarettes. I don't yeah. know. We're, we'll find out someday. I was going to say, we'll find out. Well, the, the jury's still out on that. But I got to tell you, Jamie, that's funny because when I got sober almost nine years ago, this time, I still, I smoked. And vaping was just becoming a thing mm-hmm. about that time and nobody knew anything about that so i certainly was under that impression whether it was true or not that this is healthier and it smells like blueberries what could possibly go wrong? Yeah, great. exactly exactly problem yeah. is i'm a massive addict at heart and so with smoking like i didn't smoke in my car because i didn't like to smell it in my car i didn't smoke in my house you couldn't smoke at work right so there was it limited the amount of time, the frequency and the amount that I could smoke. But with vaping, Jamie, I was doing it fucking all the time. How did did you stop? Yes. And if so, tell me how. So I tried Tantix and I told my kids who were both living with me and much younger at the time, I knew that it could cause as a side effect anger outbursts or increased anger. And I had enough self-awareness being in recovery like 18 months at that point that anger was a thing for me. And so taking a drug that could potentially have that also as a side effect, I wanted them to know like, look, if I'm getting angrier or that my anger is becoming a problem, you need to call me on it like immediately. And it was like a weekend and they sat me down like, you need to stop it. You need to stop the chantix. Wow. Because it's making you scary kind of angry. Oh. Yeah. And so then I just went cold turkey on it. I went completely cold turkey. I pulled up my father who did the same thing. He smoked three packs of Paul Malls a day and went cold turkey. I basically did the same thing because I was vaping Jamie and you could like choose how much nicotine was in the fluid, you know, and it was, it got really out of control really quickly. And I just went complete cold Turkey on the bit. So. But what a gift. I mean, the fact that you were aware with your children that, you know, they're very lucky. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah. And I'm also lucky that they were able to be honest with me like, yo, dad. You got to <laughs> that is a problem. That is a problem. That needs to be a scene in something that is very cute. <laughs> it, was, it was tremendous. OK, so, Jamie. Yes, sir. I feel like there's an elephant in the room in terms of the, the culmination of your book. And some light needs to be shed in terms of the climax of the book. Um, well, uh, the brink of which I speak is really 
psychosis, like utter psychosis. And I, I had possibly drug induced. We don't, we don't even know. That's the thing. When we're in that place, we'll do anything. And someone told me to snort something I did. Don't know what it is till this day. They wouldn't. Mm -hmm. My mom was trying to find out what is it so they could counteract it with medication. They wouldn't tell her what it was. They're like, it's cold medicine. (laughs) Sure. Sure. Um, So uh, that's what I was able to recover from. But um, the funny thing is, and I don't think this is too much of a spoiler because I say it in the foreword of my book, um, things actually got worse for me after this book. I'm writing the second book right now, but it's harder because things got much blurrier after that. I bet. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a pretty shocking story. And the most shocking thing of all is that really after age 20, I just did almost a 180 and was able to have like this normal life and you know parts of me needed more putting back together than others and I needed and I needed lots of therapy and I still had severe emotional tra- trouble which it's miraculous I'm here like I've I've wanted to you know I've been on the brink of throwing it all away a, a million times but I always had faith that I was here for a reason. Maybe it's this book. Maybe it was my movie. My movie was also something I was very driven to do. Both, both things I wrote came out really quickly. I think I wrote the book in two or three months, wrote my movie in like two or three days. Like I felt like they were delivered to me. Like Mm -hmm. I was a vessel for them. And, um, and that made me think that they were worthwhile. So I, I endeavored to get them out to the world and whether the world is receptive to them, you know, we have yet to see. If they're anything like me, they're going to be extremely receptive to them. Uh, As I said, extremely captivating, relatable, and, Again, I'm not a reader. And I and when I say that, my mom is up in heaven who is a librarian and oh. wondering how she birthed a child that's not, quote, a reader. That's so funny. It skips yeah. a generation. <laughs> but this has me just locked in and not a lot of books do. Uh, you're talking to an ADD kid. If I'm super interested, I'm like all in, right? If I'm not, that's a struggle. I'm all in on this. Yes, same, same. We are very kindred spirits, Charles. <laughs> right. Tremendous. Yes. I can't wait for the ebook because then I can listen to it while I'm walking with my recovery dog, Louie. And that would be oh. tremendous. Absolutely. Is he behind you? I thought I saw he someone. He is. And so is Chubbs, oh. uh, the cat. Uh, we're working on that being an ironic name because he is, uh, according to the vet, uh, morbidly obese. Oh, no. You know, I. So I lost a cat in my active alcoholism and addiction eh? because I left the garage door open and he escaped and I never knew what happened to that cat. So this is my amend to my youngest son. And I should probably call him payback because he's kind of an asshole. That's so funny. 
but a lovable asshole. My friend did have a cat named Karma. You could use yes, that. that's <laughs> what I'm, yes, bingo. You got it, baby. You got it. So we got Chubbs <laughs> and we got Louie, and they're just tremendous. So cool. I I had a dog. He's he's the star of my movie. He's not the star. He's in it, and um, he passed away a couple of years oh, ago. Man. Yeah, I I haven't been ready to get another for one. real. Yes, I feel that. I know that in my bones that when Louie does cross that rainbow bridge, it's going to be a good while before I could ever get another uh, okay. another pooch. Yeah, I just, I mean, you just can't. No. Well, some people do it right some, I know I can't. I yeah. mean, I, I'm not, I, I just, I feel wrong. I'm, I feel like I'd be replacing them and there's no replace, right? Right, exactly, exactly. We do have uh, our friend is staying with us right now, and she has a poodle mix, and she's so sweet. So that's kind of filling the void. And then we have a stray cat that adopted us, and he's crazy. He's only occasionally affectionate, and then he'll slice your face off. (laughs) So (laughs) he's like, "Come here, come here, pet me." I guess that's not so unusual for a cat. It's not. It's not. The cats are so instinctual and so primal, right? And they give zero fucks about anything. <laughs> Truth. You Truth. know what I'm saying? So you kind of got to respect that because they just give no fucks. You know, they do what they want when they want. I just have a healthy dose of respect for that. And it's also really irritating at times. Yeah. Yeah. You just want to cuddle. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, and my- Cuddle. Maybe next year. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, So, Jamie, do you identify with having any diagnosable mental illness? Um, I've gotten a lot of them over the years. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am on medication. Um, It's technically an antipsychotic. So, who knows what happens if I skip that? Um, but it's so funny because I feel so normal now and not heavily medicated and, um, and that's the way it should feel if it's the right med, right? Right. Right. And I've been called that it's balancing something. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I've been called bipolar. Uh, I've been called borderline. I've been, been, I've been told ADD as well, but I, and I was given Adderall and I didn't want to take it because I'm like, I don't want to do speed on purpose. <laughs> I was very much the opposite and went to my doctor and said, I think I've got ADD. And we started going down the list and I scored extremely well on that test. And yeah, thank you. And <laughs> it came naturally, of course. <laughs> I got I got Concerta, which is just the extended version of Ritalin. And it was great because then I got to say, it's starting to work, Doc. But I feel like I maybe just need the next dose up. I think that would be a little bit more effective. And then the next visit, that was starting to work even better. But I bet, Doc, if I had the highest dose, it would work really well. And I, of course, thought to myself that that was true. It wasn't. I was abusing it, right? And I don't, 100% abusing it. And allowed me not to eat 
basically all day. And I go home and get drunk off of like six beers. It was great. Um, not super sustainable from a right uh, from a health perspective. And you talk about circling the drain, so I can very much identify with that. But I really do feel like elevating the fact that you talked about therapy and you talked about getting on the right medication from a mental health perspective. All of those things can be important tools in order to achieve recovery and wellness. Yes. Uh, And the labels are less helpful as much as just understanding some of the things that you particularly are struggling with and then trying to identify what makes sense for you from a overall wellness perspective. Certainly for me, therapy and working a recovery program in parallel unlocked my recovery. I tell people all the time, if I didn't do both in parallel, no way. Mm -hmm. I'd be where I'm at today. Just Mm -hmm. no way. I had to do them both. And in the beginning, I had to be on on medication. I had to be on antidepressant and I had to be on on anti-anxiety. And today I don't have to be. But, you know, that was for a number of years, right? In order to be able to get to a place where I was starting to be able to live a life that allowed me to feel like my mood and my emotions were more regular. I mean, and there's no shame in that. People shouldn't have any shame for needing medication to balance, as you said, something that is not firing chemically correctly in their heads. You know, you got it. You got it. A hundred percent. All right, Jamie, we got some closing questions. Are you ready? Or have you ever been? Yes. <laughs> Jamie, what does your regular or daily wellness routine consist of? Okay, well, I need to go to the gym to do yoga or Pilates every day or I lose my mind. And I do just maybe 20 minutes on the elliptical before that to get the heart rate up. Um, I find if I skip even a day, Doing that, I feel all out of sorts. Um, if my gym class isn't until later in the day, I'm grumpy all day until I go. And that's the thing. Like, sometimes you'll be grumpy and say, oh, I don't feel like going. I know. You have to go. Yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, it's so funny. I That's really the biggest part of my wellness. I try to eat well. Um, I'm very spoiled because I'm not a cooker. My husband is a great cook. So I get well-balanced meals because forget it. When it was me in charge, I was eating, you know, Reese's peanut butter cups for dinner. (laughs) Talk about unsustainable. So, you know, eating good exercise, something that really made a difference for me. And this is, uh, really what is about a year and a half ago. I did hypnotherapy because I couldn't stop my cyclical thoughts. Yeah. And uh, it took, it was like a 12 week program. And I really recommend that to anyone that feels like I've tried everything. I can't break these thought patterns. It's a miracle. I mean, I know I keep using that word. I've had a lot of miracles, but it's the only thing that finally broke me of the negative thought cycle, even, you know, medication, everything. Uh, that's what really did it. So, you know, if I'm feeling down, I'll start the day with a, a meditation or a hypnotherapy. Um, 
yeah, and try and I try and greet each day and each person I meet with love, and that seems to make life pretty good. I think that's a tremendous recipe for a sustainably well life. Jamie, you talked about physical activity daily. I preach that on the regular. It's still a cornerstone of my recovery and wellness Mm -hmm. routine. I have to walk every day. Or like you said, I don't feel right. And sometimes I don't want to. Mm Mm-hmm. But I do it anyway. Most days I do, but there are some days I don't. And I firmly believe that action gets me well. Mm -hmm. My brain often is out to get me, right? But if I put one foot in front of the other and do the next right thing, then my brain gets right. Yes. Even doing errands or little things you have to do instead of putting them off, you know, don't put off till tomorrow. I find anything that comes across my desk, I do it right away. Then I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to fret about it. It's done already. You got it. That is so satisfying. You got it. No question. And the hypnotherapy is fascinating to me because I know there are many people listening to this that suffer from what I like to call the monkey brain, Mm -hmm. the monkey mind cyclical thoughts that are negative or counterproductive and feeling like they're on an endless loop and you're thinking about them in the shower and then you're thinking about them while you're on your way to work and then you're thinking about them while you're making dinner and then you're thinking about them when you're trying to sleep. They don't go away, right? And so it's the first time that's been recommended. Wow. So I'm going to just put that in the show notes. So check the show notes right now. We'll just, you know, have a, a, a handy... A note about hypnotherapy. If you're so interested, you can learn more about it on your own. So that's tremendous. And eating well is fundamental in my recovery. A, a good, balanced diet makes a big difference in terms of. Yes, yes, absolutely. Jamie, what book had the biggest impact on your? journey to wellness? Uh, Gosh, I think my, I mean, it wasn't a self-help book. Uh, I don't know if it's about my journey to wellness, but it was such a realization of self or something. There's this book, The Idiot by Dostoevsky. And it's this sensitive guy who, what, you know, this was the 1800s, you'd probably say he was on the spectrum or something. He was in a sanitarium and he comes back to society and how everyone treats him. And he winds up just caught up in the society that overwhelms him. And, you know, people call him an idiot, but he's not an idiot. He's just full of naive love. He wants, he wants to be a simple, I related to it so much that he's just, and my dog actually was named Mishkin, which is he was Prince Mishkin in the in the book. Um, so, yeah, I, I and he, the world winds up really abusing him because the world is not kind to innocence. Mm, no question. 
Jamie, that's a way out podcast first. So that's great. I love it. And it is of a vintage that is rarely invoked. So color me <laughs> a fan of that. That is tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. And kindred spirit, he sounds like, right? Kindred oh, sure. spirit. Right? Sure. Yeah, misunderstood. He probably didn't listen to Nirvana, though. <laughs> He would have if he grew up in the 90s. <laughs> Jamie. It would have been his jam. No For question. Sure. I'm convinced of that. What is the best piece of advice you'd give to someone who's experienced what you or similar experiences to you? Be kind to yourself. I could hate myself for all the things I put myself through and the situations I put myself in, but I'm not saying you have to laugh about them or shrug them off, but give yourself grace. Um, I know that's getting thrown a lot around a lot lately as a phrase, but it really means a lot to me, you know, cause with my cyclical thoughts, I, you know, only till recently I was calling myself, Oh, I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot. No, you got to be nice to yourself. Like you could be like, that's a silly thing I did, but no, you're not an idiot. You know, Absolutely. say nice things to yourself is a huge part of feeling better. Absolutely. How we talk to ourselves and how we treat ourselves matters. Yes. And yes, it's in vogue, self-forgiveness and giving ourselves grace, but that doesn't detract from how important it is. Yeah, there are worse things to be in vogue. <laughs> <laughs> no question about that. And one of the biggest game changers for me in my recovery, Jamie, was being able to go back to traumatic events in my own life and be there for myself mm. and give myself the self-compassion that I needed at that time. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah. And it was transformational for me. And I can use that in my recovery today and in my wellness today. Give myself compassion and grace. It's, a, again, a practice. Mm -hmm. These are things mm -hmm. that don't come naturally. I have to practice them. That is, in, a, in essence, self-hypnosis. Okay, cool. Okay. All right. I'm more and more interested in the hypnotic therapy the more we talk about it, Jamie. Jamie, what's the greatest challenge you've had in your journey thus far? I mean, it depends. On, I would say surviving my teen years. Preach. Um, yeah. Preach. You know, I mean, it, it's no small miracle based on what I've read so far. Okay. Right? Right. I mean, I could say, you know, making movie was really hard, but, you know, if you're looking from a, a further viewpoint, what the, what is that called? The sky view or something? Anyway, I'm losing that word, but um, yeah, I, it didn't, I wasn't really trying. It just kind of happened. But the fact that it happened and I was able to survive my teens is something I'm really grateful for because I know not everyone does. 
no question about it, Jamie. And I relate to that. I've had more brushes with death based on a myriad of close calls. And I'm extraordinarily grateful for that. And at times still have a hard time with it. Yeah. And it's the first time I've said this on this podcast. This just happened. My 34-year-old niece, who definitely had her battles with alcohol and mental health, took her own life over the weekend. Oh, God, Charles. Mm -hmm. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And we experience that as we traverse our journeys and... It's hard not to look back at my own brushes with death and not feel some survivor's guilt around that. Yes, yes, yes. I felt the same way. I yeah. I lost a friend to suicide and felt the same way. Because you know, you know where they were at when 100%. they did that and it brings it back to you. Oh, yeah. God. Oh, sorry, Charles. Thank you. And that's why I'm so glad that you were able to put something like this out. Because if just one person, Jamie, reads this that experienced something similar to what you experienced, or God forbid, the awful battle that my niece lost is able to come out the other side. It's worth it, right? Absolutely. God, that would be a miracle. I'd be really grateful if I had a hand on that. I'd, it would make it feel like going through that was all worth it. That our stories have that kind of power. We don't get to decide who it helps, how it helps, when it helps, but our stories have that power I believe that. I truly believe that. Yes. Jamie, what has been your greatest success thus far? Uh, um, starting to create work for myself. I, I did the, I, it all started when I came out of a big depression last decade, really. Um, and I wrote a play and I produced it and it was really well received and it's also very vulnerable and autobiographical. So, you know, I didn't know how it would go over, but to have it received so well and won an award, um, it has instigated, I wouldn't have been able to put out the book. I wouldn't have been able to make the movie if I hadn't done that first, it gave me the confidence to think my work is worthwhile and that it makes an impact on people. That's absolutely tremendous, Jamie. And the amount of time, effort, and what you must have to put into it is so significant when you produce something that's so intrinsically tied into your own journey. and to put that out into the world, you know, it's isn't it? Best. Yeah. 
<laughs> but it's so satisfying too. Like now if I'm not creating something, I, you know, it's like, if I don't go to the gym, I, I need, I need to always have a project going to feel satisfied. That's tremendous. And what a great way to launch this rebirth of creativity. Yes. Yes. The next one's a doozy, and then we end with a fun one. Okay, a doozy. Bring it on. Okay. What is something you haven't forgiven yourself or someone else for? Well, he's not going to listen to this, so I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, my my dad didn't even watch my wedding online because it was, happened during COVID. So I try to give him grace as well. You know, he's a flawed person. He did his best. I'm using air quotes there. Um, but I I do have some resentment that I couldn't just have a normal dad. <laughs> like, what would it have been like? What would I have been able to accomplish um, if I'd had a supportive, loving father? So I don't want to say, like, I'm still angry with him. Like, I'm accepted it but i don't know i don't know i don't want to say i can't forgive him but i i definitely have some resentment there. there's still so. some stuff there yeah for sure yeah, yeah that's sure. real yeah that's absolutely real and that's why we asked that question because it's so relevant to our experiences and the things that we go through and understanding that this is something that we all grapple with mm -hmm. in one way or another and forgiveness is its own evolution in its own process yes and it must not just be a recovery saying jb but we always say that they did the best with what they could at the time with what they had you know you can look at that two ways you kind of let them off the hook right <laughs> right I'm trying to be gracious here, Charles. I choose to believe that, by and large, people are doing the best with what they have at the time. Right? The mm -hmm. flawed, like you said, uh, they came from upbringings that were far from perfect, and they're a product of that. Right? Yes. And it is still, I think, the exception, not the rule, for folks to be able to break that generational trauma, to bring this episode sort of full circle mm -hmm. i think that is still the exception rather than the rule and most folks are very much dominated by the patterns that have been in place in their family for generations mm -hmm. yes mm. and uh, that's been my journey is getting increasingly closer to the person i feel called to be in increasingly closer to love. I love that so much, Charles. And that's a journey. Mm -hmm. And it's been a long one. And it's been a worthwhile one. Yes, yes. More high fives. Indeed. Yes, everybody. Come on, we're high-fiving. We're doing it. Let's go. <laughs> we're on that journey. Okay. Closer and closer to the people we feel called to be and closer and closer to love. Amen. Here's the fun one. Okay. What song symbolizes recovery to you, Jamie? 
I feel like I should go with the one that came to my mind first. A hundred percent you should. Um, and it, it's in the book. I won't tell you where you'll find it, but it's a Morrissey song. It's a B side from his solo career called girl least likely to. I like that. Yeah. How many oh. times have I been around recycled papers, paving the ground? Uh, I, 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 I will sing you the whole thing. <laughs> then you'd have to pay the royalties. <laughs> Indeed. And it'd be worth it. But somebody's got to make it. She screams. So why, why can't it be me? That's a way out podcast first. Yeah. In two ways. The first, that song has not been recommended until this very moment. Well, it is a B-side. <laughs> which I appreciate. <laughs> Woman after my own heart. <laughs> I've got a great daily text chain with a great friend of mine in recovery, and we trade songs back and forth, and he always accuses me of having a very eclectic and sometimes obscure <laughs> musical uh, taste yeah and it's great it's absolute but he's honest with me sometimes because I'll, I'll send him one that i'm just totally all about and he's like that is garbage that's great girl least likely to by morrissey mm -hmm. absolutely tremendous and i was expecting big things and you delivered because you invoke so much great music in this <laughs> book jamie <laughs> So much. And yeah, it's a, it's a through line. I'm very it, musically inspired. You and me both. I love it. I absolutely love it. And just your experiences around being in concerts in the mosh pits and that visceral energy that is being released during that time in music and then that evolution into the raves, which were just, I mean... Those things would be illegal. I think they might. Maybe they are. I don't know, but they should be if they're not. No, they're still happening. Are they? Yeah. JB, those things, again, nearly died in one of those. I nearly killed oh. somebody in one of them. It's not. It's just a. those things are reckless. Yeah. Yeah. And that's thinking back on my 16-year-old self thinking, how did you survive? What were you doing? What? in the actual hell were you doing but the experience of the music and dancing and just feeling like at one mm -hmm. there's a part of the book where you encounter somebody that you had an acrimonious relationship with and you rediscover this person at a rave yeah maybe about a year later after a, a fallout, right? And this dude like hating you and he comes up to you was, and, and he's just like all about love and he's wanting to give you a hug. Was he on ecstasy? Is that why? Probably. Yeah. I'm thinking that's ecstasy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's hundred percent. Pumas were more comfortable than the Doc Martens. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's tremendous. That's absolutely tremendous. <laughs> Check the show notes right now for a handy link to The Brink, a tremendous book 
by Jamie Andrews, as well as Jamie's tremendous book recommendation, her best piece of recovery advice, and her tremendous recovery song recommendation, Girl Least Likely To by Morrissey, all in the show notes. Right now, Jamie Andrews, thank you so much for sharing your journey to and through wellness to this point. And all about the brink, this has been tremendous. Charles, it was a pleasure and a delight. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you, everybody out there in Way Out Podcast land for your ears. We will talk to you next time. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out. We appreciate your ears. We're sharing powerful recovery stories and recovery power topics every week. So keep listening up. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. There you can subscribe to the Way Out podcast on all of the major podcast aggregators, such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, Overcast, and more. Or simply drop your hosts a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, contact us at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety date will.